So we're in Matthew chapter 26. We're only going to look at the first five verses this morning. We call this particular message, Refuse Authority. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. When Jesus had finished saying these things, that's an odd way to begin a chapter, isn't it? It makes us want to look back and say, well, what did he say? And that's what I've done. I've just gone back a a little bit here, Matthew chapter 24, and this is just in summary fashion. You, You certainly can look through your scripture the same way. Matthew 24, Jesus said the temple would be destroyed. There would be false messiahs. His followers would be persecuted. The abomination of desolation described in Daniel would stand in the holy place. He would return in great glory. His words will never pass away. No one knows the day or the hour of his return and wicked servants will be assigned a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Chapter 25, Jesus tells two parables of the kingdom of heaven and he described the eternal separation that would occur for wicked servants. Jesus said, All the angels of heaven would accompany him when he returned. Now, I pause right there just for a second, because as we have just come off of the Christmas story, the account of the birth of Jesus, and we were out in the field at night, the shepherds were in the darkness of the night taking care of their sheep. And an angel came before them and spoke to them. And then after that angel came before them, the skies opened and there were armies of angels that worshipped God. Now that's armies of angels. How spectacular will the Lord's return be with all of the heavenly hosts in full force showing up at the same time? It will be a jaw-dropping experience nonetheless. But here's how spectacular it will be. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus said, all nations will come before him. All the people of all the nations will be divided into two groups. Those who are placed on his right side will experience eternal life. Those who are placed on his left side will be in eternal separation from God. 
Well, that's important for us to read and more important for us to understand because there is no argument. There is no defense. You don't get to stand before him and say, but I intended to, whatever, or I hoped to be, or I've been crossing my fingers and wishing that this would all work out in the end. You don't get to do that. He will declare you as his own or that you will be cursed forever. That means you and I do not determine the requirements of eternal life. We might have in our minds what we think we ought to do, but there's nothing more important than what God says we are to do. The religious leaders of that day knew the Old Testament law and they imposed the law onto the people of God. They, they did this attempting to achieve a right relationship with God. They followed the rules. They, they lived self-righteously, often comparing themselves one to another. And they assumed that they had a right relationship with God. One might reconsider that assumption, being that they had not heard from God in 400 years. They have not seen the presence of God. They've not seen the power of God in over 400 years. Why would you assume that you had a right relationship with God? Do you have a right relationship with God? I read something this week. I don't recall where it was, but it did cause me to think. I know that the, the emphasis that we often have in worship services and in evangelism is about salvation. Being saved or lost, dead or alive. And I was convicted over that because that's not it. You see, if, if you are hung up on salvation and you believe you have salvation, you go no further. Salvation is the benefit of a right relationship with God. And if the right relationship with God is your focus, that never ends. You're always trying to please God with what he's given you. You want to honor him with your life. You want to glorify him through your life. And I wonder, have we made assumptions because we're attending worship? We serve, we sing, we preach, we teach, we do VBS, we go to Paris, France. We do all of these things in the name of God. Are we assuming that those things are what get us to heaven? Or do we have a right relationship with God? What is the basis for your assumption on that relationship? Worship is good, but that's not it. Serving is good, but that's not it. Tithing is good, but that's not it. It's about a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, where he recognizes you as his own. Doesn't matter what you think or what you hope. He must recognize you as his own. 
So it does not matter what you've read in someone else's book. doesn't matter what you've heard a preacher or a teacher say in church or on the internet or on TV. Jesus determines the only way to be reconciled to God and experience eternal life. By the way, when you have a right relationship with God, you will worship and you will serve and you will tithe. I don't know about you, but I don't want to cross my fingers and wait for the moment when all the people are before Jesus and he begins separating them left and to the right. I don't want to wait till that moment to see which side I'm going to be on. I want to know now. I don't want to stress my life thinking, I wonder, is he going to choose me? See, this is why we have God's word. This is why we've been given his spirit so that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt our relationship with God. So how can we know this morning? First, we must understand that we are equally dead in our sin. And I don't say that to beat us up. This is just the rea- reality in, a, in the presence of a holy God. We are in a terrible situation because we have sinned against him. We have offended God. And we know through scripture that the offense of sin requires death. So we might look at each other and say, hey, I think I'm doing better than you. Great. But you've still missed the mark. Every one of us have. And it's not to, to, to look at us and say, oh, we are terrible people, which we are compared to the holiness of God. The reason why we would focus on our sin is to show how great God is. That he would love me in spite of me. Even though I have rejected him, even though I've rebelled against him, even though I've offended him, he still loves me enough to give me his son to die for me that I might be reconciled to him and have eternal life. There is nothing greater. Second, we, we cannot do enough good. We cannot say enough prayers. We cannot stop doing enough bad things to have a right relationship with God. So we're sinful people, dead in our sin, and we can't do anything about it. And that creates the situation that we're all in. It's more than a mental agreement that that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's more than being familiar with the Bible and reading it through. It's more than attending worship services. So compared to God's holiness, we are all in a hopeless state. Then how? How can we know? How do we bridge that gap? Simply put, God's Salvation is through grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. According to scripture alone. For the glory of God alone. 
There's nothing else to be added. Nothing you and I can do. He's not asking us for his help. He has done it all. And it's for his glory. In Matthew 25, verses 41 through 46, these are some of the things that he had just said. So then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. We can pause right there for a second. The intention of God is that we be with him, not that we be with the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they all will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So as Jesus described those who would be qualified to be on his right, the righteous, this would have come as a great offense to the the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders, because they did not serve people this way. In fact, they would avoid the less fortunate, lest they be considered unclean, that they could not perform their religious duties. So Jesus made a bold statement here, and I think it is applicable today. The very thing the religious leaders thought made them clean were the very things that kept them separated from God. Do you hear that? Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. It cannot be what you think. It must be what God said. He's the one that sets the standard. It's the standard of his holiness, the standard of the payment, and it's only accomplished through Jesus Christ. Sin has separated us from God, but to be reconciled to God, it's through the blood of Jesus alone. And if we have added to that, or if we're attempting it any other way, we do not have reconciliation with God. And if we do not have reconciliation with God, we do not have eternal life. As we look at the chief priests and the elders, are we in the same situation this morning? Are we assuming that we have the right relationship with God based on the things that we do? Jesus is not describing a works-based relationship here. Instead, he's revealing the result of a relationship with God. See, when you're in a right relationship with God, you will have a love for other people and a desire to serve. That's his heart. God takes possession of our hearts and he molds it into his likeness. And that's his character. Let's look again at our passage. Matthew 26, only look at the first two verses. So when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, 
You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, these would not be the words that the disciples would expect to hear. They had a different plan. They were looking to to have the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to establish rule here on this earth. That those who oppressed them would be defeated. That the rule of Jesus Christ, God himself, would be established on this earth along with the Jewish people. That was their plan. So when they heard these words, what did they hear? Surely Jesus does not mean he's going to die on a cross. Were they just not listening to the words of Jesus or perhaps they were believing he's just telling another parable like for the temple to be torn down and rebuilt in three days. Maybe he's talking like that. I cannot imagine their thoughts as God's story began unfolding before them. God sovereignly orchestrating every detail, but they would perceive it as the end. In the coming days, a disciple would betray Jesus. The authorities would come and arrest Jesus. The other disciples would abandon Jesus. Another disciple would deny Jesus. The Messiah would be executed on the cross. Their friend would be buried in a tomb. This does not look like the plan that they had. Because now everything that they had hoped for, everything that they gave up their lives to follow, came to an end. Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. I don't know if your translation reads the same as the English Standard Version that I'm reading from. So my... my, Translation uses the word then. Now, if I just read that straight out, it appears that Jesus has just said all of these things. And he's talking to his disciples and said, you know, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be crucified. Now, if I continue reading that just like that, it says then. It's as if all the leaders then went over to the palace and started making the plans to make that happen. But it, it is not that way in Greek. In Greek, it is happening at the same time. So the, they're not listening for him to say that and then responding to what he said. This is what's happening. As Jesus is telling the disciples what will happen to them, at the same time, the chief priests and the elders are at the palace planning for it to happen, planning to take his life. And it does reveal the spiritual condition of the religious leaders of the Jewish people. See, if Jesus was blasphemous, if Jesus was a threat to all that is godly, then they would have grounds to arrest him and crucify him. But the leaders were planning to arrest and kill him secretly. 
They didn't want anyone else to know about it. Why is that? Did the religious leaders not recognize the divinity of Jesus? That's not a speculative question. I can give you the answer. Because I look to the religious leader, Nicodemus. And here's what he said to Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 2. He said, we know. Now, he's speaking of the religious leaders. We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Why? Why would the religious leaders who recognize that Jesus is from God, why would these men of God want to eliminate a man that they knew was from God? That's the dilemma. Everything they devoted their lives to, they worked hard. They memorized scripture. They knew the law inside and out. They had the reputation in the community. Everyone looked to them. Suddenly, all that they had worked for would become insufficient. Their reputation would be deflated and the influence that they cherished would be removed based on what Jesus said. Their authority was threatened, so they refused the authority of God. And they were religious people. That's why you'll hear again and again, it's not about religion, folks. It's about a relationship. Coming to church does not usher you to heaven. Jesus ushers you to heaven as he has reconciled you to God. But isn't this the barrier to being reconciled to God? The very thing that that the religious leaders were going through? We like the idea of salvation. We like the idea of eternal life. But we do not want to give up the authority of our lives. This is why we like to bargain with God. As if we had any chips in the game. God, if you will do this, if you will bring healing to my loved one, then I will serve you. Like he needs you. Like he's wringing his hands wondering if he can accomplish his mission without you. He's God. He accomplishes by the very spoken word. He can create all things. He does not need us. He desires us to worship him because that's what we've been created to do to be devoted to him, to be committed to him and his ways because that's the best way. If we rely on our own way, we're lost. It's the way of death. We, we want to live eternally in heaven, but we also want to embrace the world system that opposes God. We call him Lord, but we don't live like a servant of God that's been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, 
says, but they said, these are the religious leaders, not during the feast, this kidnapping and killing him, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They didn't want to, they didn't want a, a war to happen. They wanted to keep peace. Lang's commentary says this, observe Christ's power over his enemies in his death. Often when they endeavored in his death or and when they endeavored in his life to take Jesus, he escaped from them. But now that they desire to not take him, Jesus says, I want to be taken. And by taking him here, they fulfilled the prophecies in killing the one who is the true Passover and proving him to be Christ. Now, I know that's not the religious leader's intent. They didn't want to prove this man to be Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one of God. But by their actions, they're doing the very thing, fulfilling the prophecies of Old Testament. A follower of Christ is a servant of Christ. But it's not that easy. See, a servant of Christ has voluntarily refused the authority of our life so that we may love, so that we may serve, and so that we may obey the will of God. We cannot do that unless we refuse our own authority. In your heart, I want you to answer this question. Do you refuse the authority of Christ to live your life? Or do you refuse the authority of your life to live for Christ? Left, right. I believe God's word to be true. And I believe that Jesus will absolutely come in all his glory and that all nations will be before him and that all people will be before him. And I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, he will say, you are mine, you are not. You are mine and you are not. Based on his standard, not ours. No defense, no argument. And let me just say, it's not wise to assume which side you're on. For that, we turn to God's word. How do we know? Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, for God's glory alone. I pray that you are in that place today and with all confidence that God has given you right now that you know, that you know, that you know that you have refused the authority of your life and you have embraced him, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior.